Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. We weren't just uh, not allowed to do it. They were pushed. A few cases, they were assaulted. In all cases, they were put in a corral so far away, probably the closest they got is from here to the back of that room. We could do like a, uh, did you all watch My Cousin Vinny? Did you know the movie? It's one of my favorite uh, law movies because he comes from Brooklyn. And uh, when the, the nice lady who said she saw, and then he, uh, he, he says to her, how many fingers do I, how many fingers do I got up? And she says, uh, three. Well, she was too far away to see it was only two. These people were further away than my cousin Vinny was from the witness. They couldn't see a thing. Murphy, I, I really don't know where to begin with that, but I, I think maybe the best place to begin is to bring in the guests we have joining us um, who just coincidentally from your home state but lives in Alabama where my cousin Vinny is supposed to take place. John Anzalone. Hey, welcome, Enzo. <laughs> Mike, Robert, um, I feel like when I listen to Giuliani or any of these people, you're, it's like living in an either alternative universe or you know, reading or living in real time an Onion article or maybe a Borat <laughs> movie, right? I mean, it's just like... Uh, well, careful on the Borat references with Giuliani because unfortunately yeah, he's already been in that. That was on purpose. That was on purpose. <laughs> well, um, Joe Pesci, noted constitutional scholar, is going to be weighing in later. So we're really get to the bottom of these legal issues. It's unbelievable. It is. Uh, so let's give a little background on John. I met John um, a long, uh, more more years ago than I want to admit on this podcast. But uh, his re most recent claim to fame uh, is Joe Biden's pollster. And so we're looking forward to talking a little bit, uh, about how that race, uh, what he saw and how that race played out. Uh, but let's start with what in the hell is going on? We live in a banana Republic. Now I'm going to go down to Argentina to study how to properly run a, uh, a political system. Cause this is, you know, for the first time in American history, we have a president who luckily is basically just armed with bullshit, but is is out literally having kind of a hostile reaction to an obvious election result, which is in the end, they're going to throw him in a wheelbarrow and take him out the door on the 20th, one way or the other. But the damage he's doing, I mean, we see polling showing that 40, 50 million people think the election was fraudulent. And, and that is just. It's treason. You know, I, I don't normally throw that word around, but this is unbelievable. At the end of the day, I, I do think that, um, you know, it, it, this is a sideshow, right? I think we can all yeah. agree that it's a sideshow. There's not, you know, a lot of um, heavy hitters in this party who are, at the end of the day, going to stand up and back this guy to the very end. I think that Trump clearly puts pressure on people like the minority, the, the, the uh, leaders of the Michigan legislature who are going to go to D.C. tomorrow, who both have acknowledged, by the way, in the press that, you know, <clears throat> um, basically uh, Biden's leading by an insurmountable amount. And it, it, it's not going to change, but they're going to go and, you know, kiss the ring and it hopefully will be over uh, after that. I think the, the, the silver lining of this on the poll, and you mentioned, Mike, the number of people who do believe that, that this is real or fraud is that a super majority of people are kind of in the, in the reasonable camp here and ready to move on. Uh, and, and, and that I think at the end of the day uh, will prevail and, and make us feel better about what's going, what, what, what will eventually uh, happen. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I have to say though, just in the theater of the absurd, and we ought, cause I'm getting endless texts about this and people freaking out, particularly on the Democratic side. So I'm going to take a minute to go through the crazy Michigan stuff here. Uh, we're, we're both Michiganders, John and I, so we're going to defend the honor of our state a little. Hopefully we'll be able to uh, down the road. So the Wayne County, which is Detroit, and some suburbs to the west and south, uh, some of which are more white and Trumpy than the city itself, they have a canvassing board like all 83 counties, and it's pretty perfunctory. They have one job, count the darn votes, supervise you know, the mechanics of it. So they got together, they deadlocked, 
there was apparently quite a lot of turbulence and, and complaint, as there should have been. And then the two Republicans on the board reversed themselves. One guy's gone into hiding. The other has kind of become a bit of a, a wingnut media star over it. And now it'll go up. Now they're trying to recant what they said, but that doesn't have a lot of grip. It, it, the vote's been done. And if there's a deadlock, it'll go to the state board of canvassing. So I predict the cable news is going to discover the retired state senator who currently runs a florist shop on the Ohio border down in Monroe County, Norm, who is going to be one of the two Republicans uh, who's going to have to decide to be crazy or not. And my instinct is he's not going to be crazy, but his wife said she saw hijinks in Detroit, which, John, as you know, in the mythology of Michigan politics for 30 years, the Democrats always complain about, you know, all kinds of Republican high crimes. And the, the Republicans all look around, something's going on in Detroit, kind of like Chicago. And, of course, it's always just urban legend crap. But here we are. And, you know, it is – and Trump is fanning it. So I, I agree. I think the, the, the head of the state Senate basically said, no, we're not going to do any crazy elector thing. But they're flirting with it which is just so damn crazy. And I think that Joe Biden is going to have to put the country back together. But can we also talk about the genesis of this? Yeah. Which is, you know, Donald Trump has had a problem because he's a misogynist with Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of yeah. Michigan, from day one. And, you know, the fact is, is that she was doing the right thing for her state during <clears throat> the coronavirus. She still is. Uh, she showed real leadership in a void of leadership at the national level. And that ticked um, Trump off in April, I guess it was, March or April. Uh, and she pushed back on him and, and kind of became a hero because of it. And she's had to do it multiple times. And Shirky and Chatwood, the, the leaders of the, the um, legislature, quite frankly, have enabled that. And I think that they're enabling him again by going up there. Um, but let's not forget a lot of this. They, they just dropped the last lawsuit in Michigan, by the way, right? So yeah. this is all theater. Um, and this is because I believe that Donald Trump has an obsession with a strong woman leader, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, and is why he'll just continually needle uh, the state of Michigan. But you're right. They're playing into the bad kabuki theater, which is convincing people who don't know the pro wrestling aspect of this ridiculousness that there's something wrong when there's nothing wrong. And, and this is precedent breaking in American history. Well, and I think what Monday we have the state board of canvassers meet and you could have the right. same dynamic as the first Wayne County vote, which would again be absurd. Um, and you know, if you ever saw one of the commissioners in Wayne County, the Ned Stabler who uh, chastised, um, you know, his colleagues, uh, where there was bigger discrepancies during the primary than there was during the general. Uh, and yet, you know, they, they went ahead and certified uh, in the primary, but not the general. And so, you know, we may have more kabuki theater uh, with the state canvas board, quite frankly. Yeah, that's my point about Norm the florist or the other guy is a young lawyer from Kent County where the interesting thing there is Kent County is kind of square and God-fearing Dutch reform and, I don't know. I think culturally, Schenkel, the florist, when he was in the state Senate, was not that crazy. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see if the Trump evil field can warp even them. But the bottom line is it is all kabuki and noise. So you can turn off your cable. Don't worry. It's going to get certified. Biden's going to get the electors, and Biden's going to get sworn in on the 20th, as it should be. Right. As a reminder, the, the, current, the current total in Michigan is Biden plus 154,000. So we're not talking about... This yeah, isn't five one bad machine, right? Yeah. This is right, this isn't five hundred and thirty-seven votes in uh, in Florida. Can we put it in context that that is fourteen times the victory margin that Trump had? Right, right. With none of these hijinks, by the way. With none the of Dems these didn't try this. I'm sitting right. in my hands and I won't sign the papers. Crap. Uh, when it was really tight. Could you imagine if Hillary Clinton had pulled this in 2016? Oh, there'd be there'd be. Uh, anyway, we know. But Murphy, you you you're feeling so so. Is it? Because I will say one of the parts of this kabuki theater is watching the sheer number of Republicans that are going along with this charade, whether it is I, I kind of feel like, you know, we, you know, the two year old is having a temper tantrum and instead of continuing to walk through the mall, they've decided to sit down and 
you let them catch their breath and then you pick them back up and it's time to keep walking. But I kind of feel like everybody's just letting Trump have his temper tantrum. I mean, I hope you're right in that, that these Michigan legislatures legislators are going to go into the White House and say, so you lost by 154,000 votes and, and there's nothing that anybody can do about that. I just yeah I, I just, just don't think know they're if that's chicken out as right. in the room because everybody chickens out in the room with somebody who's a president so I don't know why the hell they're going but look what the repubs all think back channel or most of them not a few of the rare patriots is look Trump's crazy Trump's toast he's going to be gone on the 20th and I really don't want to like get in and provide commentary on how offensive it is because it won't change Trump and I'll get a primary right you know so they're like I'm going to let him die slow Right. But my question is, so like, when does it end? Does it end with the Electoral College on the 14th of December? Does it end 1155? <laughs> it, it ends It ends when each state certifies. I mean, that's at, at the end of the day. In the real politique, it does. Then, the, right. then it's yeah. done legally, but it may take a while for that to, right. you know, that, that's like the duck's feet under the water, the reality. But Trump is, of course, the anti-reality guy. So he'll keep yeah. squawking and, you know, he'll say that their robot electors are slipping in and, you know, he'll just yeah. keep keep doing it till they they hood him like a falcon and throw him out of the window. But but kudos, for example, to some people who are standing up to Trump. I mean, you know, the Secretary of State of Georgia, yeah, quite Rasper. frankly. I mean, you know, listen, considering who who was the last Secretary of State of Georgia, Kemp, the governor, uh, <laughs> and we can get into that in the shenanigans that he pulled while Secretary of State. I mean, you know, I give the guy credit for standing yeah. up, um, you know, and doing the right thing. It is tough in the Trump world um, because he is a vengeful person. Um, and, you know, th that's a problem. I mean, you know, Trump will have someone primary this guy, like you said, Mike. Yeah, I mean, these, these guys, uh, anybody who's being brave about this, and again, my view is we're not asking them to land on Anzio Beach here, you know. It's, but in their politics and their personal self-interest, which is clearly the organizing principle, it, they're 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 buying primaries and that right. is that's a tough crew and one thing i mean, look i you know i'm here i'm an apostate i supported biden i'm glad he won i gave him money we republican voters against trump we spent 30 40 million dollars on it but i do get that and sometimes my dem democratic i see some of the electeds being so pious about it they're morally right but then again their primary voters all ha hate trump you know so it's um I, I get the squeamishness, but I, I do wish more would rise to the occasion. Yeah, I do too, because I think what, what I don't want to slide too far past is there is real significant damage that's done by either 40 to 50 million yep. people, as you mentioned, not having confidence in a system that, quite frankly, is predicated on us all choosing our leaders. But also secondarily, and, and I was doing a little back of the math envelope yesterday, I mean, if we wait until the Electoral College is complete on the 14th of December to start the presidential transition, that's literally the the 50 percent point. Half of the presidential transition will be over. And lest the viewers or Murphy think that I'm going all League of Women voters on you, there's real issues from security to vaccination logistics. Um, th there's a lot of stuff that is being put on hold in a country that is challenged right now because of what's happening in and around the White House. Well, I would also add to that, not only on the transition at the federal level, but again, even in a place like Michigan, uh, the governor has better things to do with the surge of COVID and the need of logistics of uh, uh, everything that has to go with that. Um, and in a recession uh, uh, and economic uh, issues as well, you know, these legislative leaders uh, should be working with her to solve problems, not to uh, help uh, enable a president who's lost uh, and create more problems. And that, that's, you know, time is, time is uh, um, uh, important. I'm hoping one of the Michigan guys will at least want to carve out a little page in history when they're standing there with Trump and pulled the old Admiral Jerry Denton move, which you guys as Alabamans will know, where he blinks, blinks. with Morse code, you know, rescue me, because uh, it really is going to be a hostage video. And then the last bit of Kabuki Theater, just to dwell on that for one second before we move on, there will be some faithless elector. You know, this happens occasionally in, in history where some Happened guy puts on a Napoleon hat and refuses to vote the right way. Now, again, it's Kabuki. It won't change the outcome. 
but the media will grab on it because a lot of people really have never looked under the hood of what canvassing, you know, how this works. So this, this thing is, it's just going to jerk people around psychologically all the way through. And, you know, it's our president at work. So let's repeat this just for those that are, that are, that are still on edge. Murphy, remember you've, you've come over for a, a, a short stay on, on this side of the aisle and, and you've now been indoctrinated into the uh, inherent nervousness of of the Democratic Party. Not uh, me. I'm telling you, I'm still right. anti. Though I am getting my mouth cap tomorrow, so I'll fit in. See, you'll uh, you'll be fitted, but uh, it's yeah. going to be fine. Democrats. Biden's going to be the president, and Biden knows what to do. Uh, to his great credit, one of the reasons I think he won, and, and so I'd love to hear your view on this because you were right in the middle of it all, is that Biden represents a return to some sane normalcy where your political opponent is not your enemy. The truth is, in the secret world of, of how things get done in Washington, uh, Biden has a better relationship personally with Mitch McConnell than Trump ever did. Yep. But, you know, they have different agendas. But Biden will be able, I believe, to do a lot of repair work, and he has been smart to publicly make that a cornerstone because people need to hear it. Well, and, and, and voters know that. I mean, we saw yeah. it. Like, we saw it in the qualitative that, you know, first of all, the the, the number one trait that people um, always talked about uh, for VP Biden is his experience. Uh, and they feel like not only his experience vis a vis the mishandling and inexperience of Trump uh, with COVID, which again, Biden fills one of his big, Trump's big weaknesses, and that was really important. But they all, all also got a sense that he knew, knows his way around Washington and that he's a guy who would reach, out, reach across party lines. Uh, and get things done. Voters have become incredibly pragmatic. They're like really transactional, right? And so compromise, bipartisanship, even with Democratic uh, primary voters, um, are not bad words. I mean, they are ready to get things done that will help them. We are beyond the aspirational. We're beyond the kumbaya. People are pragmatic and transactional, and they're fatigued, and they're tired of the chaos. They just want, as you said, someone who's reasonable, and some and people to come together, parties to come together to get things done. And that's what you get in Joe Biden. And I think that's one of the reasons he won this race. Take us through a little bit of this. When was uh, when when Anzo, when were you most nervous? I, I mean, the one thing that we kept having to do for eight weeks in the general election was come on this show twice a week and tell everybody that nothing had changed and that stability was ruling the world. And it began to get kind of boring. Um, what, if anything, in, 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 or what in 2020 made you most nervous? Well, listen, I think that, again, when you take a look at post-election books and things like that, if there's one, you know, theme of it, it is stability. I mean, the stability of Joe Biden's numbers, quite frankly, in the primary and in the general, I mean, forget about the caucus states and all that type of stuff, but generally his numbers were incredibly stable. And I think that what we fought all through the summer and the fall were the perceptions that headlines were dynamic changers when in reality it was always stability or, or Biden actually moved up. And so whether it was George Floyd or whether it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? I mean, it's like all of the, whether it was the protests uh, in uh, Oregon or Kenosha, et cetera, there was always this sense among the insiders and the opinion elites and the news media that, oh my God, this was going to change the dynamics of the race. And what it did was it was basically a straight line and or Biden actually gained uh, by, you know, because, um, for example, Trump's worst job rating was handling the protests and George Floyd and all of that. And so, again, uh, in, in the sense, uh, in the word that uh, Murphy used about reasonable, they always felt that, that Trump made every one of these crises worse Right, and then right. Biden was the experienced hand who would approach it in a steady way and have a plan to deal with it. Um, and so, listen, all these little fires worry you at some way because we're, we're paid to worry inside campaigns and fix problems. So all of those little uh, episodes were concerning, uh, including the, you know, the attacks on defund and the attacks on taxes, et cetera. But the fact is, is that we didn't, let any um, um, uh, room for that. We always were in a position to to respond, pivot, uh, and, and uh, make it right. I thought you guys were smart after the Floyd stuff all started 
when Trump tried to move it to law and order. Now, luckily, the Trump campaign was financially crippled. You guys should send a Medal of Honor to Parscale and Kushner for that. But you you had a tough campaign decision to make there. Maybe maybe it wasn't that tough, but traditionally it would be. Do we go engage in Trump's issue in essentially a defensive fight, or do we just try to change the channel and move on? And I think you guys figured, one, this thing is too big to change the channel and move on. we got to engage and beat it to a, hopefully a draw. And two, we have the money to do it. I don't think there's a single day after the Republican convention where Trump had the money to match or beat you guys on TV. So you had the muscle to kind of be able to, to fight your way out of that corner. And I thought some people would say, oh, never give them their issue. But I, I thought it was exactly well, the right move. But, but here's, here's the other thing I would say about Joe Biden. There was never a time during this campaign where you're dealing with all these crises that he did not meet the moment. Um, and what was interesting about, again, early on, because of COVID and, and him being isolating, et cetera, is when he did big speeches, he'd go on there with the podium and the flags in the back, and he looked, sounded like a president, right? You know, when he gave his big speech on COVID plan, he sounded like a president. When he gave his big speech, uh, what you're talking about uh, on law and order, you know, talking about what he believed in, um, in terms of post-George uh, Floyd and the protests and criminal justice reform and not being, you know, for to fund, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he sounded and looked like a president. When he would go up there uh, and talk about foreign policy, he sounded and looked like a president. And quite frankly, even in the Democratic Convention, which was spectacular, and, and Stephanie Cutter should just get kudos for that left mm -hmm. and right, what she put on, which was his coming out party, he looked and sounded like a president with leadership. And let's not forget, he laid out his uh, vision and agenda. 90% uh, of our TV commercials were positive right? We gave voters something to grab onto and say, oh, okay, that's the type of president that Joe Biden is going to be. Yeah, because you, know, you know people hated Trump, so you just right. you know, exactly. you had that but for they, free. Why not run with it? They needed, they needed to know more about Joe Biden, and, and they got it. One nerdy follow-up, and then let, let Gibbs go here. So thank you, Robert, for letting me butt in here. I'm just curious, and our, our nerdy listeners are curious too. During the early days of the primary, when you were like, okay, we got the big national lead, because we got the name ID. We got a good relationship in the African-American community, but we're going to go get chopped up in some of these early contests because that's the kind of the dynamic of these things. And fundraising is okay, not great. Who were you most worried about in the primary? Was it Warren? Was it Bernie? Who did you think might catch fire? It was, I mean, I think that, again, if you, you looked at, you know, the public and the internal stuff, I mean, it was clearly Bernie, right? Because he had a base and he had a path. Uh, he had a path not only in Iowa, but clearly uh, New Hampshire because of, uh, of being the favorite son and because you immediately went to a caucus state in Nevada, right? Right, right. Um, and so here's, I think, that what's important. And again, on, on these post-election books, you know, people always talk about South Carolina, which, of course, was incredibly important. I don't think people give enough credit to how important our second place finish was in Nevada, right? Because you had Buttigieg and Klobuchar, um, with momentum, right, out of Iowa and New Hampshire. You knew that Bernie was going to win it. And a third or fourth place finish may have changed the dynamics a bit. Uh, uh, again, even with Bloomberg, I mean, Bloomberg shouldn't have done the debate. But us being second place, even though the margin was fairly uh, wide between us and um, Sanders, that, that second place in Nevada became really important going into South Carolina and, and eventually Clyburn uh, endorsing, et cetera. Yeah, it showed that New Hampshire wasn't fatal. You were you were alive. Well, and it showed too, uh, which again was on steroids after South Carolina. There there were at that point only two candidates that could put together a multiracial coalition, and you know th th that just wasn't happening with, uh, you know, it wasn't happening with Elizabeth Warren. It wasn't happening with Pete Buttigieg. It wasn't happening with Amy Klobuchar. And, you know, and then I think, look, I, I think in many ways, when you look back at Obama in 2008, you know, people always talk about Iowa and Iowa was certainly important. Uh, but winning South Carolina, basically the dominoes start to fall because the primaries that come from that Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Louisiana, like all those states that look a lot like South Carolina looks. And all of a sudden you can really pile up that lead. And, and another little trivia fact about Nevada and how important it was to come in second and not third or fourth, you know, who was brought in 
to, to go on the ground and oversee the operation there, which was one general mail. People forget yeah, that's that. what I thought. Right. People forget right. that. Um, but again, and we changed, I mean, like, you know, we went in there and we, we uh, decided to communicate differently. Um, you know, we ran on him taking on the NRA and guns because of October 1 in Mandalay Bay, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, there was, there was some, uh, there was some different strategy there um, uh, and some good work by O'Malley and the, and the team on the ground, don't get me wrong, um, that was really, really interested and probably should be dissected a little bit more. One of the things that, that I started seeing and I think Democrats started to get nervous about as well is that that last sort of two weeks, Trump is, you know, and again, it's a public health disaster, but he's doing five rallies a day. He is a pretty strong closer in a campaign. He was in 2016. Was 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 there nervousness about uh, an angst about not being able to do the type of campaigning in person that you would want to do? Let me put it this way. We certainly dis- didn't discredit that he was out there doing, you know, I mean, meaning internally. Right. We, we, we didn't put our head in the sands that there wasn't something to, you know, these crowds that he was getting. We saw that in 2016. Right. But we were also taking an incredibly responsible um, uh, take on, on how, you know, Joe Biden and the surrogates, um, we're going to campaign. Um, you know, but I think that here's the bigger question and, and maybe you know, Murph, you know, it's like, this is what, here was my biggest worry. It's like the things that you can worry about were the things I saw in 2016, which was at the end of the campaign, Trump took his biggest strength, which was the economy and started running ads. I called them the F-150 ads, right? If you remember them, they were really good and they were really powerful. He never took his biggest strength and communicated. He basically for six straight months beat up Joe Biden, never learned in June, July, and August that it wasn't working and never pivoted to making his argument that he was the guy who could save the economy. He did it once. I mean, he literally ran no ads about his biggest strength. And that was always my biggest concern. We wanted to. He would bring that he would bring that back in. Yeah, because that was strength. his card. He had built yeah. that to a decent single digit lead. And if he had pounded that nail round the clock, um, they might have broke through on it. I was I was worried about that all along. And that that was another tough one for you guys because the question is do you keep winning with COVID? And the linkage was always fix COVID, fix the economy. And you were you were selling tickets on that. Or do you try to get into Trump, the economic manager, and cut his lead a little bit? There? But we always, listen, we made a decision early on uh, also that we were not going to seed the economy. I mean, we always had an economic paid communication link. I mean, we always had to build back better. There was always some ad on about what Joe Biden was going to do for working families and small businesses. Now, there was also a healthcare lane and there was a, a COVID lane. Mm-hmm. But I think that one of the, uh, you know, hopefully, key strategic um, uh, decisions, uh, kudos that we get is that we did not see the economic lane. And that was one fight that, quite frankly, we didn't exactly win in 2016. Um, And I think that if you take a look at the number of ads that we ran that had some type of touch point to the economy or what Joe Biden wanted to do on healthcare, what he wanted to do with minimum wage, what he wanted to do to get working families back to work or small businesses, um, we fought uh, on our economic terrain, which was helping working families and small businesses. And we didn't seed that ground. Yeah. I, I think we talked about it a lot. I mean, it was the one number in a lot of the public polling, even the bad public polling, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but even in the bad public polling for Trump, the always, the bright spot for him was, you know, six, eight point lead on, on the economy. And I think we were always stunned that he never, tried to do something with it and that he didn't try to develop that beachhead into something more than a beachhead and, uh, and gave it up. It was basically a five point advantage, which was no big deal. But guess what? In February before COVID, it was a 15 or 18 point advantage on the economy. So again, I don't think we in some ways get enough credit for narrowing that margin. We knew we would never win it, but we wanted to narrow that margin. And the fact is, is that, you know, he blew his biggest uh, advantage and then didn't take advantage of his biggest advantage. And I think it was, you know. And then didn't have resources to pursue his biggest advantage. But, you know, at at one point he did have resources. I still think it was bad strategic decisions. You just wonder internally, you know, 
you know, how often, you know, June, July, August, seeing all the different things that they attacked Joe Biden on and our popularity ratings just kept going up. You would think at some point someone would say, hey, this stuff isn't working. You know, they're not buying that Joe Biden is a radical lefty or a socialist. My God, he ran against a socialist. You know, they didn't believe any of this stuff um, that they would they would change gears and like, again, communicate on his biggest advantage, which was the economy. Bernie being his antagonist in the primaries really did kind of pay off later because yes. it gave him so much cover on that because he clearly didn't get along with uh, with him in the beginning. Later, later, Bernie, I thought, was quite a trooper. One quick thing before you get into that. I mean, I, I, I always was surprised from that angle of a practitioner, Anzo, that the negative Biden frame, I don't think, was ever really figured out by the Trump campaign. And what's surprising about that is we all now know in calls to Ukraine that how much he was worried about Joe Biden. You would have thought there would have been a research project. I mean, we did this in 2012 uh, with Mitt Romney. We knew the frame we wanted to run on Romney. We tested it and we did it every single day, right? You stick, you find it and you stick yeah. to it. And I'm, I'm still surprised that just structurally they didn't. They must have hit us on 10 different things. If you look really early on in June, it was China and trade, you know, it was, you know, it was a bunch of different China kind of different things, you know, and then, and then of course to fund, and then he's going to raise your taxes. And with seniors, it was going to, you know, he's going to destroy social security. I mean, they tried every, that he was a radical lefty. He was a socialist that there was, you know, there was going to be mayhem in the streets. I mean, they tried just about everything and it didn't work. Uh, And again, they just didn't learn that they probably should have moved on to, to, to talking about themselves. Well, that's a tell, too, that Trump's running everything. So cable TV switches on Fox in three days, whole new campaign. They're sitting there showing them ads uh, and everything. So this is kind of like complaining about a paper cut you got from your winning lottery ticket. But let's talk down ballot because, you know, the polling did create a lot of perceptions that the the down ballot stuff was going to be stronger for the Dems. The Republicans, instead of losing, I I was at nine seats in in a pool betting pool on Republican loss, um, they gained them. And yeah. the Senate story was okay, net plus one, but sure wasn't great. Uh, legislator, legislatures in the same story. So what what's your take on why um, it, it, the, the Dems didn't get more out of Joe Biden getting yeah. more votes than anybody in American history? Well, I mean, I think we all have theories. Um, for me, I think that there's two things that are worth really looking at. One is, I think, strangely, that the national narrative, media narrative of Biden being so far ahead, which, by the way, General O'Malley always said, uh, we don't see that. uh, And they call them battleground states for a reason. But I think that this, this narrative that Biden was so far ahead did create a psychology with voters that checks and balances are good things. Um, you know, they were looking at Joe Biden uh, as president, who they liked and they respected. <clears throat> they were looking at, you know, Nancy Pelosi and, and, the, and the Democrats um, controlling the House. And I think that there was a checks and balance um, uh, uh, kind of equation going on there. The second thing, and I think that this is really important, <clears throat> is that we just got done talking about how Voters didn't believe that Joe Biden was a radical lefty and a socialist and was going to defund um, uh, police and was going to raise taxes, et cetera. They had a relationship with Joe Biden. They knew he was a moderate, right? Um, They knew that he worked across party lines. Um, They knew, again, that he beat 19 people who were probably more liberal than him. Generically, voters believe that about Democrats, all those things. And I think it was easier to believe at the congressional and Senate level that all those things potentially could happen. Um, uh, and I think there, there was damage done uh, below Biden because there was a higher believability that stuck to Democratic congressional and Senate candidates. Yeah, that squad stuff travels, man. You know, it excites people on the progressive left, but they feel it other places. And they, I agree, the House just didn't have that identity of pragmatic, you know, reliable pair of old boots that Biden has. And so... You know, when it, when you're scared, you, you you bet on the hedge, and the hedge was let's not let them go crazy in the house. I totally agree with you. I, I guess from a practitioner standpoint of a Democratic House or Senate campaign, what I guess alarms me a bit is this idea: we've never had more money. 
right? We we never, I mean, there there weren't races this year where they were thinking, gosh, I hope I have enough resources, or at least not many. We had Senate races that were spending more money than they've ever spent, you know, or they've spent in two or three races. And yet it still didn't seem like we created that type of identity or inoculated against the concern around it in a way in which we should have. We had historic turnout. Allow me to suggest that, you know, if you're in Minnesota and you have historic turnout, is that good for Colin Peterson? Right? I mean, if you have historic turnout, even in Michigan, is that good for Haley Stevens, who wound up a client of our, wound up winning, but it got close. My point right. is, is that, you know, if you believe that Trump is a catalyst for getting an incredible amount of people out that don't normally get out, um, that's usually not a good thing. And again, I, you know, polling it can't model turnout. Like that's part of the misses is because you expect this turnout and you get that turnout. But the fact is, is that, I think that we can also, the, my number three here, checks and balances, believability at the, at the um, congressional level about uh, the attacks on them, is that turnout in the end didn't help a lot of Democrats when you lose in battleground states. Yeah. You know, funny, I always say polling is like the catalog business. It's very good at known customers, not so good at new customers because, you know, they occasionally they show up. And this was a weird one because it was so big symmetrically. Uh, and again, I think the Dems just did not have a congressional identity that did them any good. Yeah. Um, and so people were more than happy to vote double for, you know, normalcy. I, I want to segue into a state that I know is going to be of interest to our listeners. But before we do it, uh, Anzo, just did you ever think you were in it in Ohio? Oh, well, I mean, you know, I did. <laughs> um, there was POS data showing you guys up four or five points. You don't actually have to answer it because I was just trying to poke Murphy one more time. Yeah, I good. saw some Republican points. I can tell you Columbus was going batshit crazy, and you guys saw it. Bloomberg saw it. and they, you, I thought it was smart for you to throw a little money in there because when sure. you had it, and it was like us in Florida. We thought Florida is always tough, but I thought we had a good shot at it narrowly. And anything else, it was the one place Trump would fund, so we'd defund everywhere else. So, you know, it was... We're going to either break his bank or maybe break his votes. But, but I actually thought of, you yeah. might be able to steal Ohio, and I was at, wrong. At the end of the day, Jen O'Malley, leader of this campaign, was laser-focused on 270, right? And she, course, never yeah. she never wavered from that. And like Murph said, we had eventually had a lot, a lot of money. And there was reasons to go in Iowa and Georgia. Hey, there was big Senate races there. But <clears throat> nothing took away from our core states, right? She was laser-focused on that. Uh, and anything that we did anywhere else um, did not take away from doing everything that we could do in, in the core states. We don't want to let you get away without talking about a really important state, again, that we're going to see some action in in January. But to give you credit, because you pollsters have been dumped on a lot uh, in the last few weeks, but um, for listeners, uh, I, I, I know I've known John for a while. We, we text a lot. And uh, John was was... John thought Georgia was going to be the surprise state for Biden many, 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 many months ago. Uh, so um, <laughs> lean, lean into that a little bit. Tell us a, a little bit about Georgia and then let's because um, we've got a very interesting set of runoffs that are yeah. coming up. And a big question for Biden, because, you know, you want to yes. help, but you don't want to own it. <laughs> so it's hard to be do tricky. And I don't think he's a guy that's worried about owning it, but he has. Let me put it. He has other things to do. Here's the thing about Georgia, and Gibbs, you were there in 2008, and, and Georgia always reminded me of North Carolina in 2008. You had a state that had pretty big proportion of college-educated voters, much bigger than Ohio. You had a state where a lot of people came from where? Out of state. Research yep. Triangle. You had Charlotte, the financial yeah, the metro industry. growth, yeah. You had 20% of the electorate that was going to be African-American, and Barack Obama created an infrastructure within that community to make it playable, and we won it. And Georgia is very much like that. Stacey Abrams in 2018 created and nurtured an infrastructure that was really important to build on. At the same time, African-Americans made up nine or 10 points bigger share of the electorate than North Carolina. You had yeah. the fastest rising rate of Latinos and Asians of any other, uh, any state in the nation. You had the suburbs of Cobb and Gwinnett um, acting like the suburbs in Oakland County, Michigan, Mike. 
Uh, right? I mean, yeah, so, the suburbs ain't what they used to be for the GOP. Right. We had taken Georgia six in 2018. We took Georgia seven to, uh, th- uh, this year. And so you, you had a lot of people coming from out of state because there's so many Fortune 500 companies. You had a higher educated, even uh, among whites and blacks. And so, you know, just naturally in 2008 and um, uh, 12, 16, without any presidential campaign playing there, it just became more democratic, more democratic. And if you look at the trajectory of Cobb and Gwinnett, it was, it's amazing. You know, well, I was going to say, just for our listeners, you know, Cobb and Gwinnett used to be areas that sent Newt Gingrich for uh, for oh, many yeah. years to Congress. And now uh, you're talking about great, great areas and real growth areas for de- for Democrats. Right. I am so ancient, so old that you young whippersnappers, I actually am a veteran of the 1992 Senate runoff in Georgia with Fowler and Coverdell. And in the old Georgia, which was more Republican friendly, it was close. Now, Weiss was the incumbent. We finished narrowly behind him, and then we came back to beat him in the runoff. And one of the things that happened, and we'll see if that model holds, because as, as you, we've been talking about, Georgia has really become more of a Northern Virginia-esque New South state than it used to be. Um, often it's the winner that has a little trouble um, recreating it. And if the turnout is a few beats off, which was why I think they're they're hiding Senator Purdue because he's a Fulton County turnout machine with his comedy routines. Uh, I think it'll be tough, but I, I'm not ruling it out, and I think the Repubs are nervous too because the new Georgia, it, you know, is is a jump ball. Well, and they they're nervous also because you know you have John Ossoff, who again, even though he didn't win that special election, it was probably a you know four months too early. People were still giving Trump the benefit of the doubt back then in April when he ran that special election. You know, he's a moderate. He talks about working across party lines. He gets it. He gets the memo. Uh, and then, of course, you have Reverend uh, Warnock, uh, African-American, King Baptist Church, values, et cetera. Now, they're attacking both of them, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is, is that, you know, you, you have the 30-30 rule in Georgia, right? If you can get as close to 30% of the electorate African-American, and if you can get 30% of whites, you know, you're within the ballgame. Atlanta right. Journal-Constitution came out with a poll. They're both within the ballgame. Um, yeah, you can say it's about turnout, but it's really also uh, about, you know, getting your share um, of uh, the white vote by, uh, and also meeting your African-American and Latino numbers. Um, but it's going to be competitive. Uh, I think that one of the things that you have is there's a common thematic against Loeffler and Purdue, that they're super rich people who somehow being that rich wasn't enough and they also had to like game the system on stocks and insider trading, et cetera. And so they've opened themselves up to a really nice contrast as well. And we'll see whether that matters. Yeah. You know, it is a, in my view, there is no superstar candidate running. The two incumbents have a lot of weaknesses. Ossoff, I think has a certain aggressiveness, which is working for him. Warnock is impressive, but you know, he's got some controversial stuff. There are good wedge issues for the R's there. So I think it's a real toss up though. If I had to put a gun to my head, I'd say slight edge R. We're C, because God knows it's gonna be the slug. It's one reason the Repubs are being so bad about Trump. You know, they they want the army of Trump not to uh be angry at Republican senators because they want everybody there on the on the runoff. Well, and I think, you know, you mentioned the 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 Weiss Fowler uh race uh with paul coverdale in 1992 um you know that race ends up being decided uh by 16,000 a little more than 16,000 votes yep, for for coverdale he comes back <laughs> yeah. um and but the key is as you mentioned murphy is the turnout's about 55 percent of what it is in the general election and i think it really is going to be you know and it'll be interesting to see whether do, does all this controversy around the vote and and what what uh Anzo, you mentioned earlier around the Republican Secretary of State there. What what does that do to Republican turnout in in early January? Does the where does the how does that check and balance play with an incoming Democratic president? Does um does having uh Reverend Warnock on the ballot uh do a lot in terms of that black turnout that you talked about needing to get folks re-engaged and back out into the polls so that you can get the numbers you need to. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. Look, Georgia was a, I kept hitting <laughs> refresh on my computer screen. Um, 
probably a thousand times, literally, between uh, Tuesday night and and them finally, essentially calling it, and and it's now being certified. But I think it's going to be a fascinating turnout race to watch. Uh, because I think, John, the points that you made around what Georgia looks like is th- this is going to be a good state for Democrats, not just in this cycle, not just like it was in 1992 for a, for a, for Bill Clinton. I, I think this is going to be a battleground state for a long time. There may be a lot of people on the presidential side and the Democratic side that says, well, is Florida a battleground state anymore? You know, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, whether or not you can take uh, North Carolina. So yeah, Georgia is going to be, you know, a battleground state. And there's no doubt about that because quite frankly, we want it. <laughs> and there's right. no reason that you can't with the right again. Yeah. So we got to finish up with the question to the Ayatollah now of political polas, President's Pollster. It's a good title. What was with the polling errors this time? What do you think? First of all, let's just acknowledge that this is a tough industry and that if the polling industry doesn't continue to innovate and, you know, with an incredible low response rate, we're constantly innovating in terms of how we're getting interviews and getting the right interviews. I think that there's a couple things that you just, again, have to say is that one, I actually believe that there is a certain Trump interference, if you will right? We saw it in 16. We saw it in 20. But in 18, you know, pollsters kind of felt like we're back, right? You know, on the Nostradamus side of it, the, you know, pronostication side of it. Naturally, 90% of what we do is on the message development side of it. But, you know, people think of us as only just the big number, little number. The other thing is, is that one of the things that we always um, uh, drove in, uh, in the campaign was, we just always believed that Biden needed to be at 49, 50, or 51. That it was always about where we were. It wasn't about the margin, right? And for those of us who are researchers and do look at numbers all the time and analyze, we understand that that's the importance and not the margin. I mean, you could, for example, I've done so much work in North Carolina. You know, we did Roy Cooper. He had to be at 50 or 51% to win. And guess what? Democrats in battleground states now they get what they poll. Now, you know, that is not a narrative that uh, media polls are ever going to try to explain to to consumers, but that's the thing that we know. You could have a small margin, like Cal Cunningham could have a small margin lead, but be at 47 and you know he's going to lose because we've seen that dynamic so often. And so, you know, listen, you know, there's also this conflation between what media polls and public polls are out there versus what we do internally. Um, and yes, we had it closer. General Malley kept telling people uh, that we had it closer, but we are becoming the defenders of shitty media polling, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like there's every, every university out there no, has a no. polling unit that now every major, uni- major media outlet is going to, um, is going to uh, uh, actually report. And that's a problem. Yeah, no, I, I look, I've said on this a countless number of times when when it comes to media polling, you often get exactly what you pay for. And if somebody goes to a TV station and says, I can do a great poll for $2,000 and you can get some clicks out of it, uh, be, be, beware. It is It warms my heart a bit on the polling side to hear that your numbers were closer than, than to, to where this thing ended up than... You know, I'm still stunned uh, at at reading a Washington Post poll that had <laughs> Joe Biden up 17 in Wisconsin. Yeah, I'm thinking mean, to myself, that, like, know, how did how, right. how, how did somebody not like stand in front of that and say, "Let's not put this out." That, yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the bottom line is it was pro- you know, it was probably wrong. They probably knew it was an outlier, and they probably put, uh, you know uh, still uh, reported it. And again, I will go back to as a researcher and an analyst, what I believed when I saw numbers, my numbers or wherever, is it was a, the important number was where was Joe Biden at in the poll? And if he was at 49, 50, 51, that's where you needed to be in a battleground state because I think we're in a time when in a battleground state because of a lot of different dynamics, especially against Trump, you are going to get, meaning your final result, what you poll. What's interesting, if you go to 538 or Real Clear Politics and you look at the average of all the state polls, and you find where Biden is in that poll, where his last number was, not the margin, right. and where the results, 
it, it's within one and one and a half points. Um, and so there's something to learn there, right? right? There's something to learn. Yeah, we told our listeners, average, average, average. Don't get excited about one poll. How do you think you can get better on some of the the turnout side of it? Because yeah. I, I was struck by two things, and we'll get you out on this. But first was, um, you, you know, Ann Seltzer took a lot of heat in Iowa and nailed it. Uh, and, and, you know, if we say this a thousand times, we can't apologize enough for the democratic reaction to that poll. But I'm also struck, and you'll remember this and you know, in 2012, that last air force one ride from Iowa to Chicago, we, we, we told the president of the United States, then Barack Obama, that he was going to be reelected the next day. And the lore of history says the Romney people had a very similar discussion with Mitt Romney and told him right. yeah. he was going to be president of the United States yeah. the next day. Republicans miss it in 12. Yeah. Right. And the difference for listeners was they thought the turnout, it wasn't that they were polling different people. They, we, we were all calling largely the same people, probably getting the same result. They just put it through a metric of a turnout percentage that was different than what we did. And in fact, as I understand it, they didn't think that, the black vote would be what it was in 2008. I think one one of the things you and I could have agreed on after about seven seconds and probably told them is if there's one group we're definitely not worried about, it's black voters in 2012. But I'm interested in, in, do you see that there's maybe improvements on that side of the polling house? No, because it's not a polling problem. It's usually an analytics problem, right? There's modelers. Um, You know, we don't, pollsters don't model that out. I mean, I'll give you a great example. In, in 2018, you know, the, the modeler said that 6.9 million people were going to turn out in Florida and 8.3 million turned out. I mean, that's like, that's a really big difference. Um, I think that the answer at the end of the day for all of us to get closer, better, whatever, um, uh, it, to get the right interviews, et cetera, is that we're, everyone's going to have to go to multimodal. We start, we do that. You almost see no media poll uh, doing landline cell and some type of online where they're combining all of that. They're doing one or the other and not all of them. And I think that that will help. Uh, we've moved to that. Uh, and just let me tell you, the interviews that you get in landline are a lot different than the interviews you get on the cell phone. And the interviews that are text to web, meaning online, are a lot different than both of those. And so, you know, I think, again, innovating is the is the is what we're going to continually have to do all right enzo again congratulations i'm happy for you not just for the country but for you and uh (laughs) the last thing i would say to you before we leave is uh war damn eagle roll tide and we'll see you in the saddle uh riding across iowa this summer uh mike murphy peace out brother uh, go blue or, or fight on Hoyas. I got I to gotta fight back on this Alabama infomercial here. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, Enzo. What a tremendous campaign. You guys should be very proud. And uh, now time to unite the country. And after that's done, I'll be back over to the Republicans trying to stop world socialism. <laughs> so thanks for doing this, pal. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Murphy, good to see you and uh, talk soon. No mailbag this week because uh, we had a great conversation, but... Uh, We'll be back next week with it. Absolutely. Gibzo, great to see you too. And we're talking again soon. All right. See you guys. Bye. Bye.